Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I'll be interviewing Bill Lee Emery. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. So, Bill, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up, I was born in New Zealand, uh, and we left um, when I was seven years of age to go to England. So I was in England from seven to 20. So I kind of, you know, my early formative years uh, was in England, and then I've been in Australia for the last last 50 years. So it's kind of a mixture of New Zealand. You can, some people might just be able to pick up my accent. It's still there a little bit. Um, with a lot of grounding culturally, I guess, in England, and then most of my life in Australia. So does your the majority of your family still live in New Zealand? No, no, that's all. That's a long, long time ago. Um, I have family still in England, and I have um, uh, I live with my partner here on the Gold Coast, and my daughter lives in Melbourne. So... What influenced you to write your book, How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism? Well, there's a couple of things that happened early on in my life. And I know that you are very aware of what happens to the messages that we get as kids and how that can affect us in our lives. But one of the things that happened to me, I've, I've been presenting now workshops for nearly 40 years, but early on in my career, I was teaching to a group of special education teachers and I made the assumption that they would be perhaps more um, compassionate, kind, thoughtful um, as special education teachers. And in most cases, I was right but I was wrong in one case. And in the second week of a, an eight-week program, I was talking about a model of behavior called transactional analysis. And I was just getting into my stride. This, I, I made it what I thought was an innocent comment. I just said that I didn't think that guilt was a good way of getting kids to do things, and I still don't. Anyway, that she launched the most vitriolic personal and professional attack I've ever experienced in my life and no one has come anywhere near close to the Scud missile she was sending my way. But fortunately, I'd learned a couple of things of how to keep myself grounded, how to think on my feet, and I was able to deal with that um, without losing my dignity or making her wrong. I was just stating my position. But then years later, in fact, just a couple of years ago, I've been working in men's gatherings for the last eight or nine years and presenting workshops on a variety of different things. And I was just paying attention to some of the conversations around the meal table. And a lot of men were saying, um, complaining, I guess, they didn't know how to deal with criticism, whether it was from their partners or at work or whatever the situation might be. And I thought, ah, that's a good uh, title for a workshop, How to Deal with Criticism. And so I went back to my past experience, not only as a child, but also the story I just told you about, and created a workshop for the next year, which I did. I ran that. That was very successful. People loved it. And so that became the, the background, if you like, the framework for my book, which is really, you know, f for me, 
it, life is an inside out journey that our life is lived from the inside and then the world is basically a mirror for what's happening on the inside so really i'm teaching people to become more aware of what they do with their inner conversations and whether that's dealing with their own inner critic or dealing with criticism from the outside but but probably you know when i talk to most people and i've worked with some elite athletes and people in the corporate world etc and you know sometimes the inner critic can just be you know just in the background nudging away saying you can't do this you can't do that and part of really being a a fully aware and um, authentic and sovereign human being is dealing with the things that are just out of our awareness and bring them into our awareness so we can actually deal with them and make better sense of them did you say earlier children don't don't learn through guilt yeah that i didn't think that guilt was a good way of getting kids to do things okay and why do you say that because there are better ways of getting kids to do things. If you're, if you're putting a guilt trip on a child, mm-hmm. then they might do it because they have to, because you're bigger than them. But that's the, they won't be doing it from a full heart. They won't be full consent and, and um, willingness. So you can make someone feel bad and get them to do stuff, but gosh, there's way better ways of doing it than that, in my view. When you uh, said that, I thought of this story. I remember this story about uh, this kid. He was in class and he was standing up while the teacher was at the chalkboard. And when she turned around, she saw him standing up and everybody else was sitting down. And She said, sit down. And he stomped his feet and he said, no. And (laughs) she turned back around and she began writing again, trying to ignore him. And he kept standing. So when she turned back around, he was still standing up. So she said, sit down. And he stomped his feet again. And he said, no. And she said, if you don't sit down, I'm going to come back there and I'm going to smack your face. And he stomped his feet and he said, no. And she walked over to him. And just before she got to him, he sat down. And she walked back over to the chalkboard and he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> That's beautiful. And, and, you know, I don't know what his reasons for standing up was, but one of the things that I often talk about is boundaries and how we set boundaries within ourselves and how we set boundaries with other people. And if he's stomping his feet, there's something that's going on inside of him that the teacher from her own perspective of having to control the kids, et cetera, but isn't listening to what's really going on inside of him. And rebellion can be a really, well, it is. It's a really powerful force in the world and in people's lives. But when we are unconsciously rebellious, then that's sometimes not so useful. And I remember in one of my classes years ago, I was teaching weight management programs. It's one of the things I did a long, long time. And again, I was using this model of transactional analysis where we talk about the, the parent, the adult, and the child, and the critical parent and the nurturing parent. And I won't explain it all here because we don't have time. People can just do their own search. 
But one of the, the participants, when I was talking about the critical parent, the part of it says you should do this, you must do this, you have to do this, and, and all these shoulds and, and, and control. And she realized that she was overeating, not because she wanted to, but because she was stomping her feet like the boy that in your in your story and was rebellious, but she was rebellious against her own better health. And once she realized that she didn't have to be rebellious, she could choose to eat or not eat, then she chose the more healthy path. But that was came like a blinding flash of the obvious to her. That if if you know if we're not aware of the things that run underneath us, what I mean by that is the unconscious patterns. If we're not aware of them, then they will run our behavior. They will run our life. And part of my work, and and, and I understand part of your work too, is to help bring those things, put them on the table, so we can look at them. We can pull them apart. We can work out. Is this worth keeping or not? Is this worth me hanging on to or is it time for me to dump this pattern of behavior because it's no longer serving me? That's a lovely story. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure you can. It's like we have to be careful. Well, because like you said, the rebellion part and it only hurts the person. So things could be done to us in our lives and different experiences we can have but it's our reaction to it yes. that will be carried on through our lives. So our reaction to a parent who was verbally or physically abusive to us could be, you know, I hate and hold on to hate. And whatever we behold, whatever we keep seeing, we will live into that picture. So what we hate, we become. So yes. we have to learn the proper way how to let go of these experiences and choose something different because a man can't turn from something until he turns to something. So the change is choosing and not stopping is a more powerful magnetic force into choosing versus stopping. Totally agree. I totally agree. And I have a routine every morning where I go through um, a list of choices of the things that I choose. So living for my true nature and purpose is one of them. In uh, choosing radiant health, mind, body, and spirit. Choosing other certain things in my life. And making it conscious and doing it every day gives me a focus and a reminder that every single moment in my life is I'm connected to. If something is, is troubling me, then I need to deal with it, like work it out, what's going on here. But there are no victims that, that I, can, I can be a victim of myself if I choose to. But that, that, again, is a choice. And this is a hard conversation sometimes with people, depending on the kind of background that they've had and the experience that they've had. But in all the work that I've done over the last 40 years, um, you know, I'll personally come to the conclusion that the more I can take responsibility for three things. One is what I think, because that's in my charge. That's in my uh, ability to deal with that. The other thing is being responsible for my emotional responses in the world. And that often I'm not, in my life, I found that pretty hard sometimes. 
one is being responsible for what I do. And to the level or the degree that I take responsibility for those three things, my life will be shaped by that. But if I give up responsibility for what I think or what I feel or what I do, then I become a puppet of other external experiences or forces or influences in my life. And I don't like being a puppet to anyone. Yes, you give up power. Yeah. Taking responsibility is better. And like you said, if you can get rid of the blame thing, you can really transform your life if you can get rid of the blame. Yeah. And the denial and the judgment and the rationalization, the justifications for all the things that are going on. And I I remember, because I've also worked with teenagers and young kids, you know, I would draw um, a graph on the on the chart and on one line there'd be responsibility and on the other axis there would be freedom. And I asked the kids, you know, which one do you prefer? And of course, they all want heaps and heaps of freedom and none of them would take responsibility. So then I'd tell the story, if someone takes no responsibility in their life, where do they end up? Well, they're going to end up either in prison or in, a, or in an institution for something uh, because they don't, you know, if they want to go for a toilet, they just go where they are. They don't have any connection with uh, accountability. And But what parents, and I'd work with parents too, when a child is taking more responsibility for something, it might just be cleaning their room, whatever it might be, then they need to be given an equal amount of freedom so that if someone takes more responsibility, they are given more freedom. And when kids see this they go hmm, okay um can you tell my parents this stuff because then, <laughs> then they can work out a win-win situation that that the more responsibility they take the more freedom that they get and so then this is a, a framework for learning about life and how to be a fully functioning and authentic sovereign human being in the world because things will happen in life we plan for life the best that we can but still there are different things. It's not linear. You know, it's filled with peaks and valleys and all types of things that happen along the way. Uh, I remember Rocky Balboa, the fictional character, you know, Rocky. Yeah, Um, sure. um, His son was talking to him and he was, you know, his son was discouraged and he was complaining and complaining. And Rocky was trying to get him to see a brighter spot in things, even though it seemed, you know, not so good right now. And he told him, he said, life is not how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep <laughs> moving forward. Yes. Indeed. And life's going to do that, like to every one of us, to you, me, everyone listening to this, everyone's ever been alive. Life isn't a straight line. Um, And you um, are probably familiar with the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell expressed so well. Uh, Do you know the story of the hero's journey? I've heard some about it. Tell us about it. Okay. So, yeah. So if your listeners aren't aware of this, this is worthwhile paying attention to. By the way, Walt Disney, when he heard about this, he instructed all his writers, film writers, to use this Um, basic structure in all the films that they made since he first heard about it. So very simply, someone is in a village, they know everyone, and life is comfortable. 
And the good thing about living in a village where everyone knows you is that, um, you know, there's a safety there. Um, but the problem with everyone knowing you is that there's not much freedom. It's like, <laughs> it's like you can't really fully express yourself maybe because someone's going to criticise you. Anyway, what happens is somewhere along the line, there someone comes into a village, a traveller, and the traveller tells stories of far away, of uh, demons and devils and angels and heaven and all kinds of gloriously exciting things. And so our hero or heroine gets excited by what he or she is hearing and goes, ah, maybe it's time for me to go on an adventure. And there will be a call to adventure. In Harry Potter, this happened when the owl delivers a letter to Harry to go to Hogwarts school. And he, uh, often what happens is people get a call to adventure and they will deny it. They will reject it because it's like, it's exciting, but it's too scary. Mm. Anyway, you know, there's a pile of letters and finally Harry goes, okay, I'll take the call to adventure. And as soon as we take that call to adventure, we, are, we will be surrounded by allies, people that can help and support us. But right after that, we'll become... Uh, um, someone who who will attack us or a demon or when I say a demon I'm not talking about a, an ethereal demon I'm talking about something will something will attack us our enemies if you like and there will be a battle and it basically goes through four quadrants of more friends more enemies battle resolution more friends more enemies battle resolution until we get to the final Armageddon, the final battle, like in the Lord of the Rings, when you've got all these different armies from around the planet. Um, and the biggest battle, of course, is the inner battle. And this is what the whole thing is all about, is that all of us have our fears, our limitations um, imposed by other people or by ourselves. And the hero's journey is us coming to grips with that inner um, critic or what the the enemy on the inside the inner demons that we then need to face and once we face it it will we will become victorious because the demons you know they, they cannot they're not more powerful than us we made them up and so we can actually make them dissolve and so in the final battle um, i'm thinking actually in uh, the lion king just swapping stories when the young lion who is uh, his kingdom has been taken over by his mean uncle Scar, and there's this battle on the edge of the cliff and young Simba as I think his name is he fights his uncle and the uncle is thrown over the cliff and that's like the inner battle within us that when we deal with it we become victorious and then we come back to the village now the village is the same but we are very very different we have become wiser, we've become more learned, we've become more skilled because in all those battles we have had to learn to deal with things, take on challenges, find our inner resources, become victorious and then come back to ourselves. And then, of course, there's another call to adventure. So our first days at elementary school, first days at high school, university, first relationship first marriage, first divorce, whatever it might be, all of these are heroes' journeys. And Joseph Campbell says we never stop having heroes' journeys. So they continue all the way through our life. And hopefully what we do is we gain wisdom from each journey that we partake in, every adventure that we take in, so that we we can become wiser. 
And then part of becoming wiser is passing that wisdom on to other people. And that's, that's the brief story of the hero's journey. Beautiful story. And we will never rise above that which we are unwilling to face. Indeed. And I heard somebody say this before. We can't heal what we refuse to feel. So we yes. constantly, like, we're, once we get in the state where we are unwilling to face things because we don't want to feel that thing, that whatever it is, because it's so dreadful to us. But we have to feel that in order to overcome it. But we we have to, like you said, uh, the four quadrants, uh, friends, enemy, battle, resolution. So this yeah. constantly hap- happens throughout our lifetimes in different areas, in different facets, different levels. Um, but we have to be willing to go through it. Um, and it's like... Um, if we are rigid in life, we will break just like the tree. The tree has to sway (laughs) and it's still strong. The tree is still strong, even though it sways just because something is sturdy or just unmovable. It doesn't mean that it's going to last the test of time, but we have to bend. We have to have some bend. Yeah. Like bamboo. Yes but strong, very strong. Very strong, very, very strong. So why is it important to become bulletproof from criticism? So I mentioned before that criticism will come in two parts. One is either in a critic or criticism from the outside. And with all my coaching clients, I always recommend that they participate in uh, an assertive behavior program either read a book or they go do a program or they learn from me so they learn the words to use the expressions the body language the ability to think on your feet all those different things so there are a lot of people and i've worked also with a lot of creative people that find it so hard to take criticism because literally they take things to heart. So, for example, let's say um, I'm holding a pen in my hand and there's a couple of different um, different default programs that go on in my head. So going back to the story with the special education teacher who verbally abused me, she was calling me all kinds of names and et cetera, et cetera. Now, let's say, for example, you were to call me a goose now, or it might, could be something stronger, but I'll pick a goose. Mm-hmm. So if someone calls me a goose, then I, I need to work out, well, is that a fact or is that just someone's opinion? Now, if I've just sprouted feathers, I'm making honking noises and I'm waddling down the road, then maybe I have turned into a goose, but I just haven't noticed it, in which case I need to go and see a vet or at least a doctor. But So there's a difference between someone's opinion and someone's a fact. And I don't know how it is in America, but often when a politician opens their mouth and says, the fact of the matter is, I know they're going to be giving me their opinion. And that's a different thing. So I need to distinguish the difference between a fact and an opinion. Other thing I need to distinguish is 
let's say that I'll take the pen again. Let's say the pen is a piece of artwork or it might be something I've written or created. When people take it to heart, they take that metaphorical pen and they place it really close to their chest, to their heart. So if someone uh, criticizes the pen or the piece of artwork, whatever it might be, internally, they make it to mean you're actually talking about me. So they don't distinguish between what they have done, what they've created and who they are. They've made them the same. And so it's very hard then for people if they uh, don't have good frameworks in their head to take criticism, even if it's meant in a kind, compassionate way, they can't take that because in, on the inside, they're taking that criticism of their work and making it into criticism about themselves and that is, they are two separate things. So they need to be able to separate fact and opinion and who they are and what they do. You know, I've worked with elite golfers and sometimes their, their self-esteem of how they, you know, how they regard themselves is dependent on their golf score that day. They have a really bad day at golf. They can be miserable for a week or a month or there may be one shot that they will remember with agony for years and years and years. Um, and oh, gosh, to put all your your self-esteem, your self-confidence in your title, in your job, in the things that you do is uh, walking on quicksand because it just won't last. It's not solid enough. It needs to be deeply embedded into our own regard for ourselves. Self-worth is important because I really identified with when you were talking about the pro golfers that you, you know, work with uh, and many athletes, we can see them disintegrate right before our eyes because they don't have a healthy sense of self and self-worth before yeah. they're thrust into the spotlight. And they think if people are saying good things, then their self-worth and everything is high. I'm accepted. And the moment criticism arises, like you said, it's like quicksand. They just crumble because there's no solid foundation because we live our lives inside out. It may appear that it's outside in because we're looking at the things that are happening, but the things that are happening emanates from the inside of us. Yes. And that's where the self-worth and, um, it's like we have to be so sure of what we are in order to withstand the criticism. If I know for a fact, you can call me Eddie and you can keep calling me Eddie. But if I know for a fact <laughs> that my name is Maurice, yeah, <laughs> I become unmovable and it yes. doesn't bother me. I'll look at you like you're foolish. <laughs> the more you can keep saying it over and over again, I look at you like you're foolish, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, this is a, the, the question that I hope every human being will ask themselves. So who am I? Who am I really? Beyond how I look, you know, all those things, my job, my title, my car, my house, all the things on the outside, who I, who am I on the inside? And, what are those things that I pay attention to? 
for example, when I work with people who are perfectionists, you know, a perfectionist will look for what's wrong. They haven't learned how to focus on what's right. And in my in my book, I talk about when I'm working with the National um, Australian Skydiving Team. And there's uh, in one instance, what they do is they jump from sixteen and a half thousand feet, and they'll do say five jumps in a day, and they'll have a photographer, a video photographer, who will video what they're doing, and they'll come down, and then they'll debrief it. And they were going into the world champions the year after. And so at the, at the end of every jump, they come down, debrief, and they'd score their jump. And that's not pretty well, like a 12, which is pretty good. But then during, as the day went on, it went from a 12 to 11 to 10, and it ended up in an 8. And the coach said to me, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is. Can you help me? So I was sure. So I just listened in on their debriefing. And this is what was happening. The coach would look at what they were doing and he would say things like, uh, that's not tight enough. You need to be over here. That's not sharp enough. Uh, John, you need to come in over here. You're too far away. And what he was focusing on was all the things that they were doing wrong. And so the next jump they would go out and all the things that they shouldn't do would be top of mind. And so, of course, if when, whatever is at the top of mind, that's what you're going to do. You know, when a golfer says to themselves, oh, don't hit it in the bunker, well, the ball miraculously goes in the bunker because that's what they have been visualizing. So you know that stuff. This is, you know, you're very familiar with it. And so I said to the coach, hey, listen, this is what I think what's going on. Start focusing on what they're doing well. And he goes, oh, okay, right. So again, they did next day, they did five jumps. And, and after each jump, they're doing the debrief. And the coach you know, bless him, but old habits kind of kick in and he's doing the same thing. So there was a whiteboard that the team could see, but the coach couldn't see. So I drew a line down the middle and so do it, put it into two columns. I put plus at the top of one and minus at the top of the other one. So whenever he'd made a negative comment, I would put a mark on the negative column. Whenever he'd make a positive comment, I'd put a, a, comment, a mark in the positive column. And so, but I didn't tell the team what I was doing. I, they just became aware. So every time we said something negative, there's another mark and negative column. And they twigged as to what I was doing. So now they're starting to kind of giggle every time we said something, you know, you've done this wrong, they start to giggle and snigger. And then they're, then they're almost like laughing out loud. Then the coach turned around going, what the hell's going on? And he saw what I was doing and he went, ah, oh, damn it. And so it just took him a little while, but then he's, he, he got it. And he said, okay, I'm going to focus. And team, you can help me if I'm doing it. You know, if I'm not telling you what, you're, what, you're, what I like about what you're doing, I want you to give me some feedback. So they changed their communication, what they focus on, and their results got better and better and better. And this is the same with us as human beings. Um, so often someone will do something, get 99% out of a, you know, an exam, and they go, but what's the thing that you got wrong? Well, gosh, what about the 99% you got right? And so I would, um, this is a habit I did many, from many, many years ago, I learned this. At the end of the day, I'd ask myself, okay, Bill, what do I like about what I've done today? And I'll list the things that I like about what I've done. Then the next question is, and if I was to do that again, what would I change or do differently? Now, notice in those two questions, there's no criticism. What it is, is focusing on what's working 
and then evaluating what else I could do to make it more fun, more effective, more efficient, whatever it might be. So I'm still, I'm not blocking out the things that need to be changed, but it's the framework and the intention and the language that I use to make the changes. And I've used this with teenagers, I've used this with in corporate training, coaching, etc. So that people can go, okay, what's the good things that I'm doing and how can I build on that, build on that, build on that? And so until they become so deeply embedded that they are within us and they that, that then becomes part of who we are as a human being. But this is a useful um, um, embedding, if you like, of behavior. We will move in the direction of our most dominant thoughts. Exactly. What, what yes. we keep seeing we will become. And what we keep hearing, we will eventually believe, good or bad. If you keep hearing, you're no good. The person who said that to you may have said it once, twice, three times, (laughs) but then you repeat it to yourself 10,000 times in your mind, rehearsing it over and over again, and you will live into that picture and believe that about yourself until you do it in a way that's practical, that's beneficial to you to change the paradigm. See, we don't have to be harsh to ourselves. We think that we have to be harsh to ourselves, but you're not talking about being harsh to ourselves. You're talking about being kind and loving to ourselves, and we will live in that nurturing state yeah, and, and really what I, th- I think we'd probably both agree on this, at some stage when we have awareness of what we're doing, we need to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, that's what I've done in the past and from here on in, this is what I'm going to do instead. So, and you're so right, you know, things that were said to me as a child, um, not in any way that was vindictive or mean, but I made, I took a comment and I talk about this in my book, I'm two different teachers, two favorite teachers both said something to me and both of those comments shaped my life. Now, the thing really, the takeaway is it's not their comments, but it's what I did with those comments that shaped my life. So I can't give any uh, blame or, or, or kudos to either of those teachers because they just did what they did. But it's what I did with them, and that's my responsibility. Now, when I'm a young child, you know, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, I really have too much awareness or knowledge of of what's going on. But as I get older, as an adult, at some stage, I need to take responsibility for how my life is unfolding because that's my responsibility. And I, I, I don't know if you follow surfing, Maurice, but one of our um, national, actually, she's a a world champion a seven times world champion women's surfer mm-hmm. her name is lane beachley and she's very much loved and appreciated here in australia but around the world and she was on a uh, a program a couple of weeks ago here in australia where her photograph was where her painting was being uh, so she was being painted by somebody else and she's telling the story of her life and so six times world champion and the way that she got there it was she was hard driving on herself she would be highly competitive and she wanted to be world champion from the age of eight because it gave her a sense of 
belonging of acceptance. And she talked about this. I'm not talking about anything that she hasn't publicly expressed. And she said, but there's a cost to her body, you know, and, you know, that kind of competition is pretty damn fierce, you know. (laughs) Leave no prisoners (laughs) out there on the surf. And she said, but for the last one, she changed her approach because she didn't want to do it just for the title or for the money. This time she wanted to do it for pure enjoyment. So it wasn't the end result she was after. Now she was focusing on the process and and it was all for her. It's about enjoyment, about being in the flow. And she said she got, again, she became world champion, but this time it was almost effortless. She still had to do the work and stuff, show up, et cetera. But she was much more in flow and it wasn't, there's a difference between forcing something and allowing something and coming from your heart rather than your head that says you've got to be this in order to be acceptable, whatever it might be. And it was a really telling episode. And I'm so grateful that she was telling this story because she was so well known here in Australia and around the world in the surfing community, of course. Um, and that was the difference. I'm going, wow, far out. That's, that's for me is the epitome of full success of finding you know what you truly love which comes from within your heart and then following it allowing yourself to show up do all the things that you need to do but allowing flow to be there and 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 it was just such a lovely story and, and that was really the epitome of you know we can drive ourselves and it's a very male very yang kind of thing to do but there's yin and yang in life and we need to have a, a balance of both yes we definitely need to have a balance and just while you were telling that story i was just thinking about simplistically like a bird knows what they are as far as flight they know they're supposed to be flying, but they don't battle to fly. <laughs> no. <laughs> they go with the flow. Indeed. Yeah, and unless they are a seabird, they don't go, hey, I want to swim. <laughs> they, they, you know, they go, I know who I am, so I know what I want to do. It's natural. And it's when yeah. we, you know, when we don't know who we are, when we haven't taken that inner journey, then you know, life is lived from the outside and other people's expectations, influences on us, and we, we are not true to ourselves. And for so many people that, that both you and I have worked with, when they find out, you know, who they really are, what they really want, then life changes because now it's not a battle. You don't, you know, I'm so glad that I didn't grow up in the world of social media, of smartphones, et cetera, et cetera that we didn't have all these external pressures on how you have to be. You know, eight-year-olds, five-year-olds um, are being pressured of this is how you're supposed to look, this is how you're supposed to be. You've got to be like this to be acceptable. And it's always about external acceptance and yeah. not really helping people to, to understand internal acceptance and really being, you know, being your best friend. I have a program coming up. Um, early this year of how to turn your inner critic into your best friend because if we don't learn to you know bring those things those parts of us that we we don't like because of whatever reason that we don't learn to embrace our our demons or our inner fears then we can never really fully live from a full heart from full intelligence 
because we're always trying to be somebody else and everybody else is taken. So it's just us. <laughs> True. I, um, I remember this singer that you've probably heard of him, Lionel Richie. He's a songwriter yeah, yeah, of course. as well. And he was telling the story um, on Oprah and he was being interviewed and he talked about when he was a kid, he would cry a lot. He was really sensitive and it was a good thing that his parents didn't cut that off because, you know, when he was growing yeah. up, a man, you know, quote unquote, you're not supposed to cry. Yeah. And if his parents had cut that off and made him, you know, quote unquote, toughen up, we would never he would never express the fullness of his heart with who he yeah. is because he's a songwriter. So he was yeah. feeling those things he would have shed off those feelings we want to hear songs like all night long and all these different yeah. songs that he's but going uh, on in my head right now as you yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know we wouldn't be graced with such you know goodness and you know that pure and natural flow that was coming through him that art artistry you know so that's why it's so important to be who we are because like you said moments ago Everybody else is taken. So yeah. we must embrace. And what seems to be a possible disadvantage may not necessarily be that. If we nurture it, we won't know until we just fall in love with who we are. And it's a process. If we've been bruised, you know, along the way, it's a process. But it definitely can happen if we, you know, we just say, you know what? It's time. You know, I want to do something yeah. different and yeah. embrace that and do something different. Yeah. And find find those people around that can support you. You know, read those books, listen to podcasts, because um, there's always people out there that are willing, if we search for them, that are willing to support us. You know, I've done some mentoring and I've been mentored. And you... You may have heard the story of the old lion and the young lion. Do you know? Are you familiar with that story? I'm not sure. It doesn't sound. Well, well let me repeat it for your for your okay. listeners. So, there's an old lion, and he's the king of the jungle, and he's you know he's on a little hill, and he's surveying his kingdom, and he's old, he's battle scarred, he's had all kinds of fights and experiences and adventures, and his his body shows that. And he's also got all the wisdom that's come along from all those journeys. And he looks down and he can see a young lion and he can remember what it's like to be a young lion, you know, all full, full of piss and vinegar and <laughs> aspirations and, you know, bulletproof. And, all. and he goes, wow, you know, I'd love to tell that young dude some of the stories that I've got because he'll, he'll probably learn from them. And then you go down to the young lion and he the young lion looks up and he sees the old lion and goes, wow, look at that bloke. He's just been around forever. He is just a legend. He would have some fascinating stories. But, hey, he probably wouldn't want to talk to a young bloke like me. Mm. And really what happens is at some stage we will always be a young lion or a young lioness. And at some stage we'll always be an old lion or an old lioness. There will always be someone younger than us with less will always be someone older than us with more experience. And so at any stage of our life, you know, like a 10-year-old can be an old line to a five-year-old brother. Mm -hmm. And so 
we have the opportunity if we wish to share our experiences without pushing stuff down people's throats but with you know permission and willingness to say hey i know what it's like to be in the situation where you've been i've been there before i've got some ideas that might help you and if you want to let me know and i'll i can help you tell you some stories so the old line and the young line is is an evergreen story it happens all the time and I, from age, if nothing else, I will claim to be an older lion um, and and I've been through my own battles and scars, etc. And part of the joy of being an older lion is sharing some of the little bits of wisdom that we've gained from others. Now, when I wrote my book, it wasn't wisdom and concepts and ideas that I had personally made up. These were bits of wisdom that I had gleaned from my mentors and other people around me, and I'm simply the vehicle of expression for those things, you know, through my own stories and through my own slant, my own nuances. But really, it's, the wisdom is, is, is ancient. It's endless. It's like it's been there forever. You know, being true to yourself, listening to yourself, having a high regard, learning how to be kind and compassionate towards yourself, which is not the thing that I was taught as a young boy or male growing up. You know, we had to be strong, we had to be tough, we had to um, subjugate our feelings, not feel things, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that story about Lionel Rich is so, was so grateful that his parents recognize his sensitivity and allowed that to be there without having to, you know, him then having to put himself and then years later pulling all that armor off so he could express, you know, what was inside of him. So there's a lot of strength in being vulnerable. There's a lot of strength in being compassionate towards other people and towards ourselves. And compassion and I was reading some research on this and some studies. Compassion is one of the the values or one of the the elements that has allowed us as a human species to survive. If we didn't have compassion, <clears throat> then as a species we would not survive. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have compassion towards the young, if we didn't have compassion towards the elderly then as a species, we wouldn't survive. And when you look at um, societies or groups of people or cultures that lack compassion, there will be a time frame on their demise. Mm -hmm. It just will not, it's not sustainable. We need compassion as a species to survive. And right now, this is the most divisive time I've ever lived in. I'm uh, 72 years of age. I've never lived in such a divisive time around the world. Mm -hmm. And if we treat other people as if they are wrong and we are right and there's no capacity to listen to others, then I more shit's going to happen. <laughs> Let me say that. <laughs> we, we need to really learn to listen to each other without judgment and to express those, th those things that we want to express and find ways of expressing it which is going to be accepted. It's going to be not, not accepted. It's going to be heard because I can rant and, and rave and preach at someone, but that's me pushing my stuff on them. You know, one of my um, heroes in writing is um, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
And one of his habits says, seek first to understand, then be understood. So if we have someone who has a difference of opinion with us, and that's fine, but under, seek first to understand them. And then once we've understood more about them, where they're coming from, then seek for us to be understood by them. But it doesn't happen the other way around. How can people get in contact with you? So my, my website is bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au and I mentioned that I have a program coming up on how to turn your inner critic into your best friend so people can contact me through that and I have a free quiz which basically uh, it's a scorecard where you can kind of work out your readiness to be bulletproof from criticism and there's basically two parts one is inner criticism dealing with that and the other one is external criticism so if you go to bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au forward slash quiz they can do that. It's free. It takes about two minutes. And that's probably the best way is through my, my website. And I love how you explain that story. Um, you know, what we need right now in this world. What is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? The, I guess the thing that means the most to me and really has been my guiding light over the last 40 years, and that is to listen to your heart. And within our heart are all the things we need to be in contact with, our deep sense of self, our values, the things that are really important to us. And it's like this inner guidance system. So when we listen to our heart, it can prompt us, it can open us up, it can um, help us navigate this tricky, sometimes challenging thing called life. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornoy.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.